Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Tomorrow Comes Today, the Thought Leadership Podcast from St. James's Place. Now, as usual, I'm joined by Rob Gardner, Director of Investment. But today you'll notice that rather than hearing from our usual array of three guests, we're going to hear from just one, but it's a very special guest, the legendary Judy Murray. I had the pleasure of talking to her about her role as a parent and as a coach and to really get to grips with what the value of advice means to her. Rob, it's obviously hugely exciting having Judy as a guest on the podcast. What do you think her expertise can teach us in our worlds? Do you see any any parallels with what it is that we do? Yeah, I, so I love the, the, the whole conversation is about being a coach uh, and getting the best out of others, regardless of their background or experience. And, and I think what resonates with me is that, you know, people talk about financial advice, financial advisors, but I really think they're money coaches. And, and really, it's about advising our clients on their own personal financial journey and, and helping them make good decisions. And, and as we're here later, helping not make bad decisions. And actually, if you get that right, you can help people. She also talks about helping the 99% of tennis players, not just the top 1%. And I, I think that, that that's the same when it comes to all of us as we kind of contend with our 100-year life and a lifetime of financial decisions from buying our first car or our first home or setting up a pension or an ISA or a JISA or taking out insurance. We, we all need a coach on our side. Absolutely. Talking to Judy, it was clear how passionate she was about coaching and about communication and about getting the best out of people and situations. Now, in the first part of our conversation, we we delved very, very deep. We got into her philosophy on the subject and, and of how to, I suppose, how to see situations. It was a bit like the Tao of Murray. So let's listen now. Coaching, for me, it's an art. It's an art of communication um, as much as you know, imparting information in order to try and get an improvement in activity, ability, performance of whoever is in front of you. And everybody is unique. You know, so every person who comes in front of you or every group of people, they're all different. So the better that you can get to know them as people, the more chance you have of being able to influence an improvement in performance or a change of behavior, um, for example. So I've always um, I've always been a huge believer in having fun with whoever I'm working with. Um, I've done a lot of work with kids, but I've also worked um, a lot with adults. And it is that whole thing of being firm and fair uh, and being fun as well, because it's the it's the fun that brings people back. And of course, the more they come back, the more chance uh, you have of helping them to to get better. But my approach to coaching, you know, I've been coaching for about 30 years now and I started as a volunteer in our local tennis club in Dumblain when Jamie and Andy were tiny. It was not anything to do with them. They were in nappies. Um, I really went to over to rejoin the tennis club to have something to do, you know, to, to keep myself active and discovered that there were no coaches in the area. There wasn't much going on for the local kids. So I started to volunteer a couple of hours a week and I actually taught myself how to coach really from the base of how I learned in an era where co- tennis coaching wasn't a thing. And you learn to play the game by playing with the the older kids at the club at first and then the adults. And they taught you how to tactically and probably mentally play the game without any technique or physical input. So I, when I started at the club, that was where I started from. How do I help them to play the game? Because the fun of sport 
is the competition. It's the playing of the game. Nowadays, I feel like there's far too much coaching out there um, and not enough playing of the game. So coaching has become such a thing that kids are programmed into activities almost every night after school if finances allow. And, you know, you do something on a Monday and something on a Tuesday and so forth. So so often the kids never get to what we would call the fixture list or the, or the competition side of the game because it just becomes another thing that they do. So that was really how I, how I got started. And a lot of what uh, is now my, or became my philosophy came from that understanding of what tennis will demand of you as a sport, i.e. you have to be able to think for yourself, you have to be able to see the spaces, therefore you need to be able to hit the spaces. Um, but how do you make it difficult for the person on the other side of the net? How do you make them run side to side, forwards, backwards, high, low, fast shot, slow shot, etc. Because tennis is a very cerebral sport. And nowadays, if you if you look at the world of kids and teens and adults nowadays, we have gadgets that solve a lot of our problems for us. Yeah. Um, so the, wor- the way the world is doesn't really prepare you for a sport like tennis where you're out there on your own and, and having to solve all these problems. But, uh, you know, prior to that, going back to the fun side of it, for me, you need to have the the a good grasp of the basic physical skills agility balance coordination throwing and catching run and jump you know if you have those skills they are the skills that underpin all sports and therefore a tricky sport like tennis if you have those skills becomes less tricky and when it when you can do it you enjoy it more it's easier for you to improve so i found from working with kids and i learned a lot about this from observing my children as very young um infants how they learned just from simple games that that we were playing as a family at home you know either in the house or in the garden so if you create the games and activities that mimic the movements or actions that the sport is going to ask of you um the kids learn without realizing and they're learning in the most natural way through play not through somebody telling them turn this shoulder, step forward with this foot, elbow up, et cetera, et cetera. Because they don't want to hear all that stuff. By and large, they don't want to listen to you, but they do want to play with you. That's fascinating. And actually, it rings it rings very, very true. I, I remember the, the moment I absolutely left what I thought was going to be a um, my future pursuit of swimming. I left it alone was the moment when every single session appeared to be preparation for a gala. And I was just like, I was too young. And I was just, I don't want to be time trialing and all of that all the time. I'd love like to get in the pool please and swim it and I think yeah. the joy of it is is fascinating because it's also the thing that as as you say when when one adopts the and one sees it quite a lot the sort of the sergeant major approach to coaching that's the first thing out of the door um, yeah if, if it gets too serious too mm. soon you switch kids off so how you are as a coach it's as much um to do with the way that you engage communicate organize as it is with the content that you deliver you need to get the balance of both so you know when people are starting out in a sport you know their first impression of the sport is very much about not just what you do but who you do it with so we as coaches have to be like the pied pipers we have to be fun and lively and engaging we need to treat everybody the same um that that's another big thing for me because you know when i was when i was growing up i was um, a pretty decent tennis player um given that the backdrop of Scotland where you played tennis in the summer and you played badminton or another sport in the winter because there were no covered courts. But, you know, for for me, that whole opportunity to play lots of 
different sports and get to a level where I wanted to be good and there were no opportunities. But on the very rare occasions where I was invited to go to uh, a kind of weekend national squad, once in a blue moon this happened, um, the coach had no interest in the girls. And it was so obvious, you know, always on the end court, always on the indoor bubble. Uh, you know, a kind of multi-sport bubble out the way where, you know, the boys would be on the better courts and we would rarely get a word out of the coach in an entire weekend. And I know how that made me feel. And so, you you know, we're all products of our environment. We all learn from our experiences. And I think a lot of the things that kind of maybe hurt me or disappointed me or disadvantaged me in my growing up, I absolutely made sure that I removed them in everything that I did with coaching and that all the things that I enjoyed, which was the big number team-based activity, the fun of hanging around the the clubhouse, making sure there was other things to do. It wasn't just about the tennis, it was table tennis and card games. And you created this social family community hub. And so, you know, when I got the chance to do that at my tennis club in Dunblane all those years ago, I went on what I'd experienced, what I'd liked and what I hadn't liked. So Rob, fascinating there from Judy. I mean, the way she's talking about coaching not just being this one-way kind of imparting of information and knowledge and drilling people, surely that's got some serious implications for the way in which I suppose we talk about finance and about investment and about business. Yeah, absolutely. When, When she was talking, it reminded me of the work that we do around financial education. And, uh, and so she talked about, building the basic skills around agility, balance, and coordination. Uh, and when we teach young young children uh, about money and how it works, we, we have the foundations, which are how to earn it, how to keep it, and how to grow it. And actually, the whole way we do that is through games. We learned a few years ago that trying to teach kids doesn't work. So we designed an entire game called Money Matters and uh, different ways of earning money. They play darts, they play cards. And they learn without even knowing they're learning and they learn the foundations of of good money making decisions. So, yeah, I I love the idea of the kind of Pied Piper of money. And is it, I mean, aside from from teaching kids, I suppose, it also made me think about the way in which I suppose we view financial success. I mean, you you look at all the books at places like London City Airport or, or all those business bookstores or online, and they're all things like, 12 ways to do this and seven ways to make sure you have money and eight ways to make rich and and do this, 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 and this, and that'll be your target. Are we simply too obsessed with looking at a target and thinking that there is one recipe? You know, is it it more various than that? So, So again, I think what resonated was when she said everyone is unique and everyone is different and you need to get to know them, uh, and and I think that feeds back to how you make it fun, lively, and engaging. Because Matt, what what's engaging for you might be different for me. And I think good financial advisors, or let's call them good financial coaches, will know that actually the the language of music works for you, Matt. So how can I frame concepts around money and making good decisions using music as an analogy? For other people, it might be sport. It might be football. For other people, it might be cooking. So the better we know people the better we understand what they love and understand. And when we know what they love and understand, we can then hang those concepts off those. And then, as you, as she says, impart that knowledge and understanding uh, onto people. Absolutely. And as somebody who has inherited a lot of, I think, 
financial anxiety from my parents and the way in which money was never talked about around the table and, you know, not for people to know and you don't ask about salaries and you don't ask about house values. And it brought me up with with this great sense of wanting to find out a little bit more and wanting to know, but also this fear. And I think I think what, one thing that really struck a chord with me is when she's talking about, you know, I know how that made me feel when the coaches didn't explain things to me. Um, and I just want to kind of rectify that. And this, I mean, this leads us on to, with I mean with Judy it was it was fan- fantastic to go on from this. The next thing we talked about was I suppose the different ways in which people do want to engage, and she's fascinating on that as well. I don't mind who I work with. I love teaching and I love challenging myself to find the way that the person in front of me learns best. And we all learn differently. You know, most people learn best by copying. So therefore, for me as a coach, the importance of doing a really good demonstration that they can watch and copy, you know, shadow strokes is a really important thing. You know, so you take the ball out of it because the ball complicates things because it'll immediately look at where the ball went. And it's actually just the shape of the shots and the turn of the shoulders. You don't need to say anything. You just do it over and over in front of them and have them copy you. So big believer in, in the power of a great demonstration. I also understand that if you overload somebody, anybody, it doesn't matter if it's kids, teens or adults, with too many technical points or too much information, i.e. if you talk too much, you lose them. You can only take in so much at a time. So keeping it short and simple, but also making it progressive. So you start with the simplest thing and then you add a little bit and you add a little bit and you just keep stretching it a little bit by a little bit. And that way you build confidence through the success of being able to do it. So always start with the simplest thing that everybody can can do and that for me has you know that along with the the games doing doing the teaching so you know just to illustrate that as uh, one of one of my best examples is in t- in a sport like tennis where the overhead is so important on the serve um, and the smash and it is the hardest thing usually for new to tennis people to learn because life doesn't ask us to do very much above our heads with our hands you know looking up So coordinating that whole thing can be tricky. It also can be complicated if you try to explain it verbally because the left hand's throwing the ball up, the right hand's taking the racket back, and it's got to go up to meet the ball. It's got to go across the net diagonally. It's got to land in the box. How you meet it, where you meet it, it can be quite tricky. So what I found when I was working with young kids, particularly girls, because girls don't do much above their head at all, um, was I I created a pinata, which is basically a children's birthday type toy game. And, you know, you know, a poly bag, a cheap poly bag out of the co-op, something that's quite thin, rip up lots of uh, strips of newspaper, scrunch them up, fill the bag up with that and then chuck in the contents of a bag of wrapped sweets like opal fruits or something like that. And then I tie the bag to the, the handle of my tennis racket and I hold it above my head at a height that makes them stretch up to hit it with their racket. And they won't break the bag of sweets unless they hit it hard. So so where I hold it means that they have to hit it at full stretch with the head of the racket. And they basically run up, stop at a little line, just a little chalk line or something, and they swing to try to hit the bag. And as they continue to do it, they realize they won't break the bag and get the sweets out unless they hit it hard. So therefore, they have to find a way to hit it hard. And everybody knows if you throw a ball if you want to throw it just a short way, your arm doesn't go very far. But you want to throw it a long way, you really take your arm back and you send it as far as you as you can. 
So I say, you know, come on, you're going to have to hit it harder. And they find a way to hit it harder. And what you end up with is the makings of an overhead shot without any formal teaching whatsoever. And and that really kind of encapsulates my theory of um, of teaching kids in particular it is just finding the things that mimic the movements that you're trying to make so that you don't wrap it up in formal technical technical teaching that they don't understand, they don't want to listen to, and that ultimately can can turn them off the sport. This is incredible. And I would like to see Pinatas suspended above centre court at Wimbledon. Um, <laughs> that would be such an amazing thing. Um, but it, but it's, it, it is, I suppose it, it is, I, I see a lot in, um, you know, being a kind of being a dad to two young boys now. I see a lot on, I stand on on football touchlines, you know, in the in the winter time mostly when it's when there's sleet. I like that, and um, and I do see a lot of things like the, the coaches are starting now there to talk about. Look, we're not going to have goals. We're not going to count who scores goals. We're not going to have wins or losses. We're not going to have points. What we just want is for you to play, and and this kind of I, I suppose as you're talking about with the with the sweets and, uh, and and getting used to fun, almost removing a bit like that Robert M. Piersig book from the from the uh, the hippie sixties, you know, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, where he talks about being a teacher and deciding one day that he's not going to give his class marks. They're not going to get marks. They, he just wants them to start enjoying without thinking, "Am I doing the thing that will make me, you know, my goal or make me rich or make me uh, praised?" And and I suppose that kind of that sense of fun is something that. Um, you know, we have a lot of targets for kids in the world at the moment. It must be a relief when they come to you and sense that actually, sure, that there are going to be targets, sure, everybody wants to get better, but actually that they can let all that stress slide away and start playing for the joy of it. Yeah, I absolutely um, agree with that. There's there's too much pressure, to, you know, like I said before, too serious, too soon. There's also too much labelling of kids, you know, in terms of... Um, you know, if you are suddenly in the the county squad, for example, or you're selected for something or in and you get a label. And at a very young age, you can only have that label taken away from you. You know, it doesn't get any better than the label. So if you start to drop kids out, you know, year on year, and this happens a lot in um, team sports, it, it, that can have a devastating effect on them. So Rob, I mean, this was this was fascinating. The idea that people will do the right thing sometimes for rewards that they hadn't actually considered—that that, that making things fun, or indeed hanging sweets above people learning to serve—is actually going to get them to their goals quicker than being unidirectional about it. Is that something that we see? Uh, I suppose appealing to people's sense of engagement and sense of fun is that part of the skill of advising them about their finances? Absolutely, and again, look, I'm, my, my experience is in financial education, and uh, you know, one of the things that we do is we have this character called Rich Ricky, and he offers to double your money by the end of the game. And over the course of the game, Rich Ricky comes in with bigger and bolder uh, sort of offers, uh, and then right at the end of the game, uh, I get a phone call. From Rich Ricky, and I say, hey, "What do you mean that this is? You only have one call." Uh, and then I have to explain to the kids that Rich Ricky is in prison and he's been arrested, and they've lost all of their money. And the reason we do this is that many, many people fall prey to financial scams. Financial scamming is rife, and and actually, 
you know, during lockdown, has we've actually seen it uh, increase. And what we figured is that no better way to learn about financial scamming than to take the kids through the emotional journey of being conned in a game and then doing it. And look, it sounds terrible, but I've had, you know, I've had young boys and girls cry when they found out that Rich Ricky uh, is in prison and that they've lost all of their money. Of course, it's not real money and it's just a game. But I promise you, the amazing thing is that these kids remember that two years later, three years later, we come back and go, oh, you're the Rich Ricky guy. I still remember Rich Ricky. That Rich Ricky's fascinating. First of all, I could have done with Rich Ricky when I was a kid. Second, it very much reminds me of the methodology we're using to uh, inoculate kids uh, against fake news. They're using the same thing. We're actually report getting them to sort of look at news reports and click which ones they, they would love to believe and would love not to believe and then revealing that they're actually scams or fake. It seems like it, it, it is a kind of vaccination, isn't it, against the idea, against that, that, that rush of believing you can get something for nothing. Yeah, look, I mean, that, that, that is always the, the danger. I, I think that the, the, the other bit that struck me speaking to, to Judy was the idea that it needs to be progressive, it needs to start simple, and then slowly you make it a bit more stretching, but crucially about building confidence. I've, you know, one of, one of the things that we know when we speak to our clients, what, why do people take financial advice? I mean, I think four and a half million people take financial advice in the UK. It's because typically they feel unconfident about money and making decisions. We, we Either we don't know what decisions to do or, or, or we worry. And and, and and in previous podcasts, we've talked about the hundred year life, and I've talked about Captain Tom, and you know when he retired, we had 1987, uh, then we had you know 1992, and then we had 1997, the Asia crisis, and 2001, and the global financial crisis. Th- these are all things that scare us, but actually, the worst decision you could have done is not to invest some of your money for the long term. And so, I, I love this idea of. Uh, start simple, be progressive, build confidence. And I think really the pinata is just an oblique way of teaching. It's like a hack, right? You get inside your brain and it and it just teaches. I love it. I want to make a pinata for my girls to teach them how to play tennis. Absolutely. Uh, I want more pinatas. I want more more sweets generally from my financial advisors. <laughs> yeah. So, so I think I think the interesting thing then for Judy is this idea of playing of working with somebody as a 360 degree person and not just as a kind of as a calculator or as an investor but recognizing that we're all people now she was fascinating because then we turned to i think the idea of becoming emotionally involved and when to follow your emotions and when not to my whole drive at the moment is all about opening tennis up and giving more people access to try it. And hopefully if we do a good job because we engage the right coaches or deliverers of activity, you know, they have fun, they come back and they learn in a more natural, generic way. But we absolutely have to to grow the numbers in order to get more out further down the line. But for me, I've always seen it as 99% of the tennis players in Great Britain will be recreational players. So right. we should absolutely invest and prioritize the 99%. And, and the way it sometimes feels to me is that the whole focus is on trying to find that 1% that can go on and and, and be the stars at Wimbledon, which, which of course you need as your role models 
But the strength of your game or developing a culture of tennis across the UK, for me, that's all about numbers and uh, community clubs and having more tennis in schools. And the school thing is an interesting one because the bulk of the schools that have tennis courts are the fee paying schools. I mean, in Scotland, I think we only have two or three schools, state schools now that have tennis courts. So therefore, you can learn starter tennis on badminton courts with sponge balls and, and smaller rackets within a school gym. But if you want to progress, you're having to find a local club if there is one. And in many areas, there isn't one. And then that means that you need a car or, or money to be able to, to, to get to one. And if we make our sport too difficult to access, um, then people find something else to do and, and we lose out. And we've got a huge opportunity at the moment because of tennis being one of the first sports back out of lockdown because of the nature of it. So a big opportunity to grow the game. But that's when you realise Certainly, I realised how few public courts there are in parks um, around the country. So all these new to tennis people who might want to start playing or come back to playing again, um, it's, a, it's a bit of a struggle to, to actually find a court. And, and this, of course, is, it's a quite a contemporary conversation about the, the invisibility of something like privilege to those who have it. And the fact that perhaps I, I know you were... Um, you were talking about how the, the LTA, the Lawn Tennis Association, needs to get behind uh, that that kind of democratisation of the sport. But perhaps the people who are, you know, often are within organisations were the ones who didn't see a problem because there was no problem because they were already able when they were younger to play it and so on, were able to do. Is that something that you see changing, that kind of infrastructural imbalance towards privilege? Or, or, or is that, I suppose, it's something of the big bang that we're trying to achieve now? Um, I, I don't see significant um, change. I think what what I do with my foundation, which is very unimaginatively called the Judy Murray Foundation, that it's all about opening tennis up. So we take tennis into rural and disadvantaged areas of Scotland and we build workforces because we realise that you need people from within those areas to be able to deliver it, you know, starter coaching, starter competitions. So we invest in people and we don't just go in for a one-off hit yeah. because you can have an immediate impact with something like that, but you will never have a lasting impact. And if you're going into an area that's never had tennis before, you need to go in for the long haul and get your hands dirty. You need to create relationships with the people within the area because you want them to drive it in the longer term. And I think what I often find it with with sports, not just tennis, is that you go in and do a tick box exercise for a day and you get your sound, your sound bites of your number of people that came along and all the rest of it. But it doesn't stick. You, you know, you've got to keep going back and keep going back until you build a community of people, a network of people who can sustain the game. And that's about finding people who actually love tennis. And it's it's a, been a big thing for us with the foundation. We commit three years to a project area and we have five project areas in Scotland that, that we work with. So we network all the primary schools, the secondary schools, the youth clubs, uh, the tennis clubs, if there is one, or the, the, the muggers, um, you know, whatever space they're able to play. But actually what we, what we really focus on is this building the workforce, teachers, parents, grandparents, youth leaders, uh, coaches of, of other sports, because they are the ones that will deliver the activity when we are not there. But we teach them how to deliver, you know, fun days, um, team competitions, how to run a how to run a league, how, you know, how to hit the ball, how to get to a, a rallying stage. Um, 
you know, so for us that that takes time and we we are going in from an absolute standing start. And, you know, over a six month period, once we've identified the people who really want to work with us and, and, and grow tennis and get involved, we get them to a stage where they can go through a level one qualification. But we do lots of what I would call on the job training with them. So we don't just run workshops for them and little courses and stuff. We run events as well. We run sessions in the schools and they come with us and they help us to demonstrate and organize and set up. So we really get them to a stage where they're, you know, confident enough and competent enough to be able to deliver these starter sessions and starter competitions and events by themselves. But it is very much about building relationships with people and you need to do it over a long period of time to build trust and to gain any impact. And I think, you know, like I said before, I see too much one-off hits and tick the box, right, we've done that. And then they wonder why, you know, you go back in a few years time and nothing's happened. It's because you haven't invested in the in building the relationships for the long term. So I, I've got quite a lot of experience of doing that now. We do it in, in rural areas as well as deprived areas. And, and that's a, a slightly different challenge because you often don't find facilities and every everywhere is so far apart that the travel and all the rest of it. But the schools is a big thing for us. You get them started in the schools and then you grow, you grow out from there. So I've had a, a lot of enjoyment out of, out of doing that. But I, I would have to say that even with doing that, you can still see it takes a long time to build a, a network of, of competition in those areas because I come back to the, it's all about playing the game. Yeah. It's not about just learning to hit the ball. And actually, in those deprived and rural areas, it is even more difficult to make the sport affordable and accessible if you get to a competitive level because you're not going to, you know, you're going to have to move out of that area to find competition. And then the challenge of paying for that will kick in. So it's it's not so easy and there won't be a, uh, you know, no chance of any kind of short term solution. But, you know, I think the starting point is to do what I try to do with my foundation. And that is about going into certain areas and committing yourself to stay in for three years and, and investing in the local people. So Rob, that's a that's a really really interesting long view on it, isn't it? Where she's talking about the idea. I mean, it sounds like she's talking about founding a society somehow when she's talking about teaching teaching kids tennis. She's talking about the long game, isn't she? She's talking about the future and not just one person, but perhaps the good that they can then do and bring back. Um, is, I mean, is that something that again that we can learn when we talk about people's finances? That we're actually talking about a whole ecosystem, aren't we? Yeah, absolutely. Making a lasting impact, and you know, again, in previous podcasts, we talked about the hundred-year life. We talked with Camilla about how we underestimate our own life expectancy, and yeah, guess what? When you're 25, you're not thinking about your pension. Uh, but but yeah, we know that actually, if you can get started when you're 25, even a little bit a week or month can make a transformative difference when you're later on. Uh, the thing that resonated with me was when she talked about uh, the parents involved in the journey. And 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 it reminded me of a, a stat that I love to share, which is uh, that our parents or parents would rather talk to their children about sex than money. So back to your point earlier about, you know, your money anxiety. So, you know, you've got two boys, I've got two girls. You know, basically, we find it, we find it easier to talk to our children about sex uh, than about money, and it's a taboo subject. 
I also like the idea of the journey. I, as a kid, I used to play the game of life with my mum and dad. In fact, rainy Octobers reminds me of uh, of weekends playing the game of life and Monopoly and other great board games with my parents. But again, this game of life, it was a journey. Do you go to uni or don't you? Do you have kids? Do you buy insurance? Do you buy a house? All of these things. And I, and I, and I think th- that is part of the issue. We, as you know, we're so anchored in the now that we find it really hard to make good long-term decisions. And, and so, yeah, so that she's all about that long game. In your experience, do people, let's say, you know, the, the majority of people, do they see talking to somebody about their finances as, I suppose, as, a, as that two-way thing, as a, almost a, uh, having a consultant or a, or, a, or a therapist in some way or a sort of money doctor, or do they see it as offloading? You know, I've, I've told you what I want to do. Just ah, take care of it because I don't like talking about money. Look, I think it's back to what Judy was saying earlier. It's unique. You know, some people are time poor. Take it off my hands. Just make sure it's sorted. Other people want to talk it through. Some people, you know, it's a guide. I mean, you know, we know that couples don't like to talk to each about to, about money, uh, and and so often a good a good financial advisor is, is you know will literally come and sit around the dining room table when we could sit around dining room tables together. Uh, and 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 tease out the conversation and you know Matt you spend lots of money and and I'm boring Rob and I save all my money but Matt together you and I need to we need to navigate through this thing and we need to save to pay off our mortgage and take out some critical illness insurance but you know we also need to have fun and 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 how do we find that balance and and I think a good in fact a brilliant financial advisor helps their clients navigate that conversation and that journey. So in a way that encapsulates the the you know the Judy Murray approach and how we can bring that to bear. So what we talked about was not just how to coach but when to coach about the art of spotting those moments and sort of prospecting for the opportunities to make a difference and to avoid getting it wrong. Coaching it's it's very much about empowering the individual and you know building the obviously the the skills to hit the ball the 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 physical ability to move to and from the ball and in all the different directions that you have to move on a tennis court for example and the understanding of how to play the game but being able to trust your shots and your body to do what tennis is going to do demand of you and you know like if you look at what Andy has to do now you know sometimes he can play a match and it lasts an hour but sometimes he can play a match where he's out there for five hours in 40 degree heat you know in the Australian Open for example brings enormous pressure from um, well the situation you know it is a grand slam there's the pressure of performing there's the biggest prize in tennis then you're you know you're out there at 40 degree heat which you never can prepare for unless you go out to Australia several weeks in advance because, you know, in the UK, we just we just don't have those kind of conditions and certainly not in January. Um, but also all the physical training that you put in to know that your body can cope with whatever is going to be thrown at it. And if, you're no, if you know that your body can cope and you trust your shots and you, you know, you can stay calm under pressure because you, you trust that you've done all the work leading into it it's it's easier to be mentally strong if you trust the game and that's all about the preparation and the 
the mindset and the bringing a good attitude to what you do every single time you step out in the court, you step into the, the gym, that you're bringing great attitude um, every single day. And that is a talent in itself because not everybody can can do that. And I'm often asked that question um, by, by parents who are in that transition. You know, their kids are coming to the end of their junior career. Do they go to university? Do they go to American university? Do they try to go on the tour? And I say, well, you know, only probably the top 100, 120 men and 100, 120 women in the world make a living from playing tennis because you're responsible for all your own costs. You're constantly traveling. The costs are huge. And the prize money, unless you're at the very top of the game, is often not enough to cover the costs, especially if you travel with a coach, you're responsible for the coach's fees and all the, their costs and so forth. So it's not an easy sport to make money in. You know, you if you were pets, you'd be much much better advised to go into a team sport like um, you know, like football, for example, where many many more people earn a living from the game worldwide. But you're highly unlikely as a good junior to get to a level. Yeah. where you can make a living out of tennis. So if you're the parent, you're thinking, well, we should invest in the education if that's what they want to do, or they go and get a job, or maybe they, they find a job in tennis. So I say to them, you know, I think that there's a big difference between being a very good junior and being a very good adult player. And the average age of players in the top 100 now of the men and the women is somewhere around 27, 28. So if you're looking at 17, okay, I'm one of the best juniors in the UK, for example, that's actually 10 years you're going to have to invest before you get to the top 100, which is where you can actually make a living. So as a parent, you're probably going to have to bankroll another 10 years of investment to get them to a level where they might just make a game unless they're absolutely exceptional and very few players really are um, exceptional. So what I talk to them about a lot is that this is the reality of it. You know, you have to let them know that that's how it is. Um, but also, you know, when you're in the juniors, tennis is still your hobby. It's something that you do because you love doing it. You're young, but you can park it any day if you don't fancy it because it's your hobby and you're at school and so forth. Once you make that step to commit to trying to get onto the pro circuit, it then becomes a career and you have to bring it every single day, the attitude. And there are many young players who struggle with that transition from going out of the relative comfort zone of the juniors where there's no prize money and nowhere near the, the same kind of pressure into the, the adults where you're learning the life and business of being a pro athlete and where you are playing against very much older players who are fighting for their mortgage or their kids, you know, to, to earn their, their living. And it's quite a difficult transition that unless you have got really good experienced people around you to travel with you, it's it's a very difficult transition to make and many drop drop out, you know, after, you know, a, a year, a couple of years of trying to make it. Because if you get stuck in that those first rungs of the men's and women's tour, you know, where you're some ranked somewhere like 1400 through to maybe eight or 900, it's a real dog eat dog environment. 
and you have to get out of that very quickly. And if you don't, you tend to get stuck in it and there's no chance you make a career um, out of it. And, you know, Andy was very fortunate that he he won the US Open Juniors in 2004 when he was about 17 and a bit. Um, and he could have played in the juniors the following year. So this was a very good sign that he had something special. It, it wasn't a guarantee, but it was a good sign. Um, but actually, within 12 months, he was up to 64 in the world rankings on the men's. And he just went incredibly quickly through it, which was fantastic because he got to a level where he was making some money. And it meant we could invest that money in a coach um an occasional fitness trainer, an occasional um, physio. You, you can't pay for everything all at the one time. But right. everything that he did, it was all about investing the money in his career. You know, finding the best people to work with him at the, you know, at the appropriate um, times. And you know, he went through a lot of different people and added others in at, at different stages. You know, as you climb the rankings obviously the competition is tougher you have to invest in your body to make sure your body's ready to cope with that and to invest in your body means a fitness trainer and the more pressure you're putting on your body you need a physio to take care of your body so you're always adding people to try to make the difference at different stages of of the game but that's always the way that we saw it was when the money comes in, you're just investing it in the career. And there are a lot of players, when the money comes in, they want to put the money in the bank or into a property or something like that. And and often their careers don't take them to where you might have thought they would get to, but it's because they ha- have chosen not to invest all of their money opportunity in, in themselves and in getting better. So Rob, screaming out of that was the idea that you, I suppose you've got to hold faith and be consistent and reinvest and, and I suppose hold your hold your nerve and hold what you know to be the right course at some times. You know, if you think about that example of the of, of, of the juniors progressing, but then people quickly taking the money out and, and panicking a little bit. You know, there are clear lessons there for us in the way we invest, are they not? Yeah, a, a lot and a lot to unpack. And I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of take Judy's message of being short and succinct. So a couple of things that struck me is if you graduate from being a junior age 17 or 18, it's then another 10 years before you get up there with the pros. And and it always reminds me of that quote that it takes 10 years to be an overnight success. Uh, and and I think, you know, the fundamentals there is 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 hard work and dedication and stay the course. And the same is true for investing. The reality is that when you start saving and investing, you don't notice. And, and the, 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 the great example for me is Warren Buffett is 90 and he's worth about 80 billion pounds. But he didn't become a billionaire until he was 55. And actually, you know, 50% of his wealth has come since he was 80. Crucially, though, Warren Buffett does what Andy Murray does and he, he reinvests, right? The, the point is, is, you know, we talk about time in the market. We talk about staying the course. Uh, one of the things he talked about was about attitude and being prepared and mindset. And one of the things that we know that causes the gravest harm to people's future financial well-being is they stop and they give up. So when markets get choppy, as they did in March of this year, or as they did in the global financial crisis, two things happen. People either stop saving and investing for the long term or they panic and they turn all their pensions and investments to cash. 
and then the market recovers and then they don't get back in and, and they and they miss out. Uh, and and so I think, you know, there was just so much in there. There's yeah, it takes time, 10 years uh, at least uh, reinvest, get experts. I mean, the other thing that struck me was, you know, so he, he wins the U.S. Open juniors uh, at 17 and a half. But to get to the next level, he needs a fitness trainer, a personal trainer. And then because he's going to hammer his body, he needs a physio. And so you get experts around you. And again, I think one of the things that we know about our clients, you know, many of our clients are incredibly talented, capable people, academics, doctors, successful people in, in music, in sport, in, in, in the world of business. Uh, but, you know, we all need our own personal trainer and, phys- and, and physio in whatever form that is to help us get better. So we also spoke to Judy, of course, about the, you know, the, the idea of advice as, as a whole and whether it's just about what to do, but about what not to do and how to know. You know, looking back, I think with Andy and Jamie, you know, they both went on to have incredibly successful careers. They both were in tennis. They're in different disciplines of tennis and they play tennis completely differently from each other, totally differently from each other, which goes back to what we were talking about right at the start. You know, the better you know somebody as a person, you can look at their personality, their physicality, the way they like to play the game, and you try to mold the pathway according to their their strengths rather than one size fits all. We're all going down that route. We're all going to train here. We're all going to try and hit the ball the same, etc. It's not like that. Um, it's not like that at all. But for me, you know, there was nobody for me to learn from in Scotland because nobody had ever gone down this path before. So I was really learning as I went along. And I was always just trying to use my common sense and my gut as to, okay, what do we need to do next? Who can I talk to who's done that next phase? What do we need to put in in the next year to two years? Or, you know, what are the priority areas? And, um, you know, you don't always get everything right. But I'd have to say we we didn't actually get too much wrong. We were quite fortunate in finding, you know, the right people, the right environments at the right the right time. Um, but it is a I found it a much it is a big responsibility because you don't really know what you're doing. You hope you're doing the right thing, but you don't really know. Are you trusting in the right people? Um, it's it's really not easy. And I, I think I found it harder, actually, with some of the other children that, that I worked with um, as they became sort of older teenagers and they had to make decisions between do you leave Scotland and go and train down south or train overseas? Um, are you going to try and play or train full time after school or you going down the American university route or, you know, because it's their dream to do it. And you're in a position to advise them on what is a crucial next stage of their development, but they're not your child. So you're actually trying to advise them. And obviously you're trying to advise their parents because in a lot of these cases, it's the parents who end up making the decision. So and it in a lot of in a lot of cases it's about trying to help the parents not to make the wrong decision but i think you know i've i've seen it several times with young players that i've kind of brought through from a very young age and they've been very successful at international level in juniors and then the parents make the wrong choice 
and the career ends up going nowhere. And sometimes parents have made the wrong choice because somebody's offered them a training environment for free. You know, all of this free, go come here. And, and they've gone, oh, all those years of paying out all this money, tre- trekking around, et cetera, et cetera. And suddenly, wow, this, and it's not going to cost me anything. And they go down that route where I might have advised that, well, actually, I don't think that is the right environment for him or her because, you know, maybe it's the coach, maybe it's there's not enough sparring partners who are girls. You know, if it was if it was a female, there's all sorts of different 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 reasons, and that's that was what I found really hard, and especially when I saw what the parents chose to do, and I saw the careers go nowhere, and then you think, well. Should I have come out and more strongly said, absolutely. And I'm thinking, well, no, I can only put it out there at the end of the day. They're the parents and and it's their kids. The kids are the players. They have to make the choices themselves and then they buy into those those choices. But there were there have been one or two over the years that I've been so disappointed that I felt they could, they could have achieved so much if they'd had the right training environment with the right people at the right time but it is often the parents who make those decisions for them and get it wrong. I'm not saying every parent always gets it wrong, but I found that very tough. And, and you know, I, I wonder whether that's, you know, maybe with my own kids because I was the parent and the coach and the sort of, I suppose, the man, manager of everything, that maybe it was a little bit easier to make the right things happen. This is, I mean, there are two things I want to say immediately um, in response to that. And one of them is somebody, somebody somewhere, having seen a bunch of, you know, a lot of football parents and a lot of other parents, you know, kind of coaching their kids what, in a way that you can see, you sort of think, well, steady on with what you're saying there. I think it would be amazing to have at every tennis centre, it would be amazing to have sort of counselling sessions for parents to help them be better uh, parental mentors for their kids on the sidelines. Do you know what I mean? Somebody to help give them a bit of a a bit of a course in how to manage this incredible uh, passion and 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 talent that they may have noticed in their kids without um, squishing it. I suppose. Yeah, I think that is absolutely right, and I think it's one of the reasons why I'm always so willing to share my ex- experiences. Um, because with, with parents, because I recognise how difficult it is. I understand all the juggling that goes on. I understand the financial stresses, the pressure that it puts on the 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 whole family. You know, when one's off in one direction, the other's off in another direction, and you know, when it goes on for years, you know, it, it it's really quite hard. Your your kind of family unit it, it get gets fractured because of the demands of the sport and all the, the traveling that, that there is there. And I'm always very happy to speak with parents, share experiences, um, you know, some kind of how to be with your, your child in terms of the encouraging, supportive, learn as much as you can about what tennis will demand of them and what it will demand of you. Seek out people who've been there and done it before. Listen to what, you know, to what they say. Um be, and 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 I'm always willing to do that. I I do that pretty much whenever any any body who's running an academy asks me, would you speak with with the parents? And you know I can talk them through some of the big moment things um, because you know different things kick in at different stages of development and different years, including you know injuries. Very simple things like beware of 
Osgood Slatter's growth spurts. Make sure you've got a height chart in the bedroom so you recognise when there's a growth spurt because as soon as there's a growth spurt, it's going to put pressure on on joints. And if you overtrain on you know, in those times, you'll end up with what, what can often be long-term injuries. S- simple things like that, that they can get involved in, they can be on top of feed, feeding them, you know, understanding the right things for them to eat. Make them go to the supermarket and do their own stuff. Get Make sure they get their rackets restrung so they know what tension, they they know how to grip their rackets. I couldn't tell you the number of trips that I did with kids, you know, GB squads and things like that, where they'll break a string and they'll hand the racket to you and say, um, I need to get my racket restrung, and I'll say, "Ah, okay, take it to the stringer." Um, I don't, I don't know what, what, what will I ask for? And I went, "Well, what tension do you get them done at?" I don't know. My mum does it, or my dad does it, and you realise that, yes, of course, the parents want to be able to help, but actually, often you're not helping by doing everything for them. It's their sport; they need to understand everything about it. So even things like your bag gets lost, and you have to go out and buy new kit or new shoes when you're in the middle of France or something and it's like okay what size of shoes do you take um I'm not sure you know things like that and you know can they use a washing machine uh often not right we've got to we've got to clean the kit you know your your mum's not here your dad's not here right let's go and find a laundrette I I do all of these things with them and I make them do it I go right okay and I just say here's the laundrette and I'll just sit there and let them do it and make them check their own bags in you know even when they're little at the airport I stand back and if they're if they've gone over the weight which we've prepared them for you know by letter and or email or whatever if you've gone over the weight you're going to have to take something out and wear it you know you're going to have to put it in your backpack you must make them do things themselves so you know if I if I'm at the airport with them and we, okay we check in I go right okay where are we going now and I make them do it. I make them find it. I, I go. I just don't do anything. I just ask a question, or I say, "No, it's up to you. You take me." You know, I, I make it like that because I see everything as a learning opportunity for them. It's not about what I can do and what I know. It's about what can they learn. Rob, I mean, this keys in massively to that point you were making about making uh, turning us into a more financially fluent society, doesn't it? The way she's she's making sure that she doesn't only help people do the right thing, but help give people those instincts and help teach people how to think for themselves and how to make better decisions. Yeah, look, I, I think there's there's something great about what Judy said. I, I love the fact that she doesn't tell her her students her kids what to do but she's like you know you you go and figure it out and I think you know as a parent and in society we can be in danger of rescuing people and I think it's so important to make people feel responsible and accountable for their own choices I think she was talking about how they need to make their own choices and there needs to be buy-in but ultimately people do need to feel responsible but I think it, the ownership is on us to give people, as as you said right at the beginning, the the kind of the attitudes, the skills, the basics to trust that they make those right decisions. There was one thing that she was she was saying as well: this idea of of helping parents and those around to to to, to become better at their job, to, to to kind of look after this thing that they've got and appreciate how to, I suppose, how not to push it too hard and how not to mess it up. I mean, there's. There must be this fascinating insight that you get into people's lives, advising them on on how to make better financial decisions, where you can 
can you do you get that sometimes you're talking to someone and you can see their weakness you can see the the thing that might drive them off course and help them to manage that absolutely i mean i think this is why in all walks of life it's helpful to have a, a coach or uh you know your your, your a sort of therapist or, or whatever because we all have blind spots so you know we're all 80 percent brilliant and 20 percent rubbish that's okay uh and you know so having someone to point it out you know, at one extreme, you know, wealthy people, actually, the wealthier you get, you end up with different problems, which is, you know, you don't want to leave your kids as trustafarians and, and sort of spoiled brats. Uh, so, the, you know, at one end of the wealth spectrum, you have that. And then at the other end, you know, you spend your entire life worrying about, you know, well, how are we going to set our kids up? And, you know, who's going to pay for their wedding? And, you know, how can I help them support them buy a house? We know the bank of mum and dad is one of the biggest banks, you know, bank lenders in the UK, so to speak. So, yeah, look, and, and, you know, in the context of a hundred year life, it's all multi-generational, right? We, you know, how do we help each other and how do we, how do we not pass on our bad money foibles onto our kids? That's really important as well. I think her point about just knowing yourself and, and using the coach to avoid the pitfalls as much as to, to spot the opportunities. So powerful for me. Yeah. I think know thyself. Uh, it probably goes back to stoicism is a, is a, a key foundation and is probably a, a key principle of coaching. I'm not, I'm not a coach, but, uh, yeah, Judy's just, her, her insights and perspectives obviously on tennis, but they're, they're just as applicable to everything in life, not just making decisions about money. That just about wraps up this episode of Tomorrow Comes Today, a thought leadership podcast from St. James's Place. A huge thank you to Judy Murray for her time and wisdom and sharing it with us on this very special episode. If you'd like to find out more about her foundation and the amazing work they do, just go to judymurrayfoundation.com. This episode's guest presenter was Rob Gardner. The producer was Sarah Berksoy, editor Nathan Copeland, and executive producer Chris Murray. And if you'd like to hear more of the podcast, then it's always sjp.co.uk slash tctpodcast.com.